fun for me. I said to her, you can't touch me there. That's totally inappropriate. And she's like, oh, is this where I'm not supposed to touch you? Anyways, I've had a much better massage in Calgary. Was that a bit? Are you trying to that do a bit? Funny. It was hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> Zane, I'm when not going to encourage this. Now he's doing fake, like, hot mics here. So yeah, I know, because fake. you told me, to me 13 times to watch out because we're going to have a hot mic. Instead and that's why I did it. Sound like a real story. Could have been a real yeah. story. I want him to keep going, actually. Okay, well, let's do it after the intro music. This is The Strategist, episode 1011. My name is Zane Belger. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan. Guys, what is going on? It is our annual Strategist Halloween special. Yeah, it's a mouthful, but you know what, Carter? We do it every year, so you should be used to it by now. Oh, yeah, I, I had to take the makeup off. Yeah, they wouldn't let me keep the makeup on. I had a whole skeleton thing going. And she said, that, I'm glad to hear story? it was a skeleton and, no. and not uh, something else and not a shade of makeup that would be no, offensive. No. Skeleton. She just said Good. it looked too much like my future self. So I was upset. I think she's trying yeah. to kill me, to be honest. Uh, well, quite, you know, the strategist Halloween special is something we do every year. Um, obviously. Like many things yeah. we do every year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how is your Halloween shaping up on, on your end? I mean, non-strategist podcast wise. Uh, are, are things in line? Are you doing full size chocolate bars? You seem like the type of person to do full-size oh, yeah. chocolate bars to compensate. Uh, we don't do full-size chocolate bars, but our house dead ends the Northeast, onto a, man. Nicely done. Yeah, yeah that Northeast spirit. Our house dead ends onto a busier street. So, And uh, because the other side of the street has fewer houses, nobody really comes down our street. We get like six kids. So I probably should do the full-size candy bars, but I don't. Do you know why? Uh, why? L- live in that Northeast life. Same. Yeah. You know, we, we actually, to be clear, uh, do full-size chocolate bars in that Northeast life. We just open them up and, and just break them into Cut pieces. Them. So yeah. we get four Kit Kat pieces <laughs> per full size chocolate bar. That's what. That's not true. Don't lie that's, to me. Well, how do you know that's not true? How do you well, not know? How do you know that's not what? what hey, listen, man. One of our addresses is in the Northeast, right here, out of the three of us. Right. Yeah. This is true. Uh, Stephen yeah. Carter, how's uh, your Halloween setup going? Uh, of course, you're you're not wearing your makeup. I suspect we'll be back on tomorrow uh, when you're greeting um, children at the doors. Um, Two questions for you. What are you giving out? And yeah. uh, how many uh, Stephen Carter costumes do you usually get per year? We usually get three or four Stephen Carter costumes. Um, yeah. It's hard to tell because, you know, bald white men all look the same. Um, but uh, we we have them come by and I give them extra candy. This year we've gone with the chocolate bar motif. We're at a new place for us. So we don't know how many people are going to come by. What do you mean um, you've gone with the chocolate bar motif? What the fuck does that mean? That's going with chocolate, chocolate bars. bars. Okay. Instead of chips. <laughs> so there's a lot of you can't extra do chips. I, you know if what? I, I got like... chips, I'd eat all the chips. That's, uh, so Carter, we have to go with chocolate bars. You're an orange juice house, aren't you? You give Carter's out little things orange of orange juice. juice. Apple no. house. So, so oh. I was a, okay, I was king-sized, split it in pieces house. Uh, Corey, you are, I, 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 I suspect, regular Well, size. I'm actually going to be giving out Rishi Sunak's book, A New Era for Retail Bonds, How Our Savings Could Help SMEs Grow, uh, which came out in 2017. <laughs> Uh, I'll um, also be giving um, uh, UK politics related items. Uh, I will be giving leaves of lettuce, individual leaves. Of course, I could afford yeah. to give the entire head of lettuce, but I'll be giving individual leaves. You, you That's know, good to know. You guys jest, but the most popular house in my neighborhood when I was a kid was the house that yeah. gave away uh, the house that gave away little pads of paper. The guy worked at a no. print shop, and he no, got, created these little not. pads of paper. No. Were they realtors, and then. And you could go <laughs> no, by no. and pick up. This <laughs> is the most popular. This is the most. You guys mock. Where did you live? Oh, I'm going to hard keep in mind, though, to get paper. This was the 1920s. Era? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Carter is spending his homework in Len T. Wong. 
news bread. <laughs> <laughs> what a deep pull for the Calgary heads out there. That's great. You know, I saw a Linty Wong bus uh, ad just today. I'm so excited. He's no Justin Haver, but oh. Linty Wong can hold his own. Hey, my daughter went to a summer camp with Justin Haver's daughter. That's my claim to fame. My kids Carter, went to a summer camp Justin with Shaver spends on kids. marketing a month. I feel like Justin Haver <laughs> probably spends, and I'm not exaggerating, five million dollars a month in marketing. <laughs> uh, and if you know, by the way, if you don't know, if you're listening, you're not from Calgary. If you don't know who Justin Haver is, you've got your own Justin Haver locally. You know this yeah. person, okay? You know they're generally is, yeah. white. They generally look like ten years younger than Stephen Carter, and they spend about eight million dollars a month on their real estate marketing firm. Um, no, so in Calgary, Zane, Justin I, Haver. I'm sure every city's got the road, man. I got to call you me, out. Like part of the yeah. reason why you think Justin Haver is so widespread is because he's got the world's largest billboard, like six blocks from your house. Yeah. Also true. You're a also little true. bit local focused here. Yeah. I'll tell you yeah. something in, in Surrey. This is what we call was not the white guys effect. either. Yeah. I mean, I was just there. There was all kinds of ads for like, well, here's massive realtors. Let massive. me tell you something. Carter, if we ran a poll in our city and you yeah. asked someone, do you know your city councilor more than they know the name Justin Haver? I bet Justin Haver comes out on top every fucking time. This is not a yeah. quadrant thing. This is not a Listen, war thing. I think Justin was, Haver's papered the city. I wasn't actually going to tell Corey this, but we actually just did a poll in uh, Medicine Hat Brooks. Um, oh, very nice. Listeners of the pod might want to know why, uh, because there's a by-election there with Danielle Smith. And yep. uh, name recognition, Corey Hogan came out just a sliver in front of me. And I gotta be telling you, I'm pretty pissed off. Because normally minute. I I dominate these things, <laughs> but Corey Hogan is now a smidge in front of me. We think that they think no you're time. John Horgan. That's the only way that it makes sense because no, John Horgan retired. It's Corey back. Morgan. It's that Corey Morgan bump that Corey I get. Morgan, that yeah, bastard. Yeah. Okay. Wait, now it's all coming is, back is this to actually me. true? You actually pulled. Uh, we there's no names. way this is true. Yeah. No totally way. true. I'm gonna send you guys the poll <laughs> as we're talking. Yeah. yeah that, it's totally true. Okay. There's absolutely no way that is true. Um, I'm going to send you the poll. Here it comes. I suspect you didn't Zane vote. You didn't add my name. Yeah, I suspect you didn't add my name to the area. Did you hear where we were pulling? Did you hear where we were pulling? Yeah, I yeah, know we did the not. Posters. I feel like the penetration there is low. Um, I will say yeah. uh, one final plug. Um, as we of course um are, have a Halloween through line, it is of course the annual uh, strategist Halloween uh, special. Um, if you are looking for last minute costume, uh, and there's three of you in the household um the strategist i mean this is a, a, a it's it's a slam dunk i mean it is highly recognizable um it works uh with any constellation uh kids parents uh, all kids teenagers uh you know we're extremely extremely happy to provide you tips uh on dressing uh cory and i will actually uh respond to any uh suggestions you may have on how to best dress as us uh cory yeah. will of course advise you on the best washington wizards hats uh, I've got a wide selection uh, that I can advise you on as well. So that just just think about it, folks. It, it's a costume that 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 could really make uh, a special Halloween season. It really comes together quick, too. It's, it does. Um, it really you gotta does. Think about comfort. A lot of people are dressing up as giant dinosaurs. Who wants to wear that all night? No, no one wants. No, wouldn't you? You gotta you, you gotta you gotta dress on. as three white dudes on a podcast, and and you know that is <laughs> that's what makes it okay. okay. That is what I've, makes I've it. I've sent you guys the poll. Um, page four, I think it is. Okay, that will wonderful. Is, we'll we'll verify this, this is, at some yeah. point. Carter, anything else you want to get out of your system uh, before we jump into our, our, our first segment on this Halloween special? Uh, no, that's all I have for you right now. 
Let's move it on to our first segment. Our first segment, Don't Be a Scaredy Cat. Guys, I want to talk about a very particular debate. I want to talk about a debate, not even in this country. I want to talk about a political debate that happened in Pennsylvania. Uh, oh, Corey's yeah. smiling because he's now noticed that he's actually in the Paul Carter was not bullshitting. Okay, Corey, seven, tell us. I haven't. Seven, okay, 17% of people in this riding have heard of me. That's that's pretty remarkable. That's pretty good. Yeah, you have literally, 15. you have two first names as your first name and last name. Of course, Stephen they've does. heard of you. Yeah. But hang on. It's we Brooks Medicine Head. Everyone's Corey and Hogan are one of the top 10 most popular names there. And you put we them both, together. Of course, it's yeah. going to be 17%. We both crushed Cyril Turton. Crushed him. He's, a, he's an elected MLA. Crushed him. Sorry, Cyril. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, continue. I want to know Sorry. the 2% of people who have not heard of Rachel Notley, by the way, but that's I, okay. I know. We can move on. Yeah, okay. This is, okay, this is interesting. On. I'm looking at it right now. Everyone's heard of it. Okay, this is good. Um, yeah. Corey, let's talk about this debate. This is a debate sure. in, in, in Pennsylvania where... There is an open Senate seat, and of course, those who may not be aware, the the U.S. midterms happen in less than 10 days from now. On Tuesday the 8th, there's an open Senate seat. Pennsylvania is one of the big battlegrounds uh, between Dr. Oz. Yes, that Dr. Oz, who's running as a Republican, uh, a carpet-bagging Republican who, you know, once may have been pro-choice, certainly is not anymore, once may have been for gun legislation, certainly is not anymore. He's got the Trump endorsement. He's running as a Republican. And you got him against John Fetterman, the, the lieutenant governor of um, of Pennsylvania, this guy who's larger than life, quite literally, over six feet tall, wears hoodies, relatable, blue collar vibe. The reason I bring all of this up, Corey, is that all of this triangulated to, to a debate where John Fetterman, who'd suffered a stroke five months ago, was in this debate with Dr. Oz. And this debate did not go well for John Fetterman, mainly because of the fact that he still recovering from a stroke. Um, and what I want to talk about is really this concept of this debate. And, and in some ways, you might be asking, well, why did John Fetterman's team agree to this debate? Because it seemed like, in some ways, perhaps turning down this debate was a worse option for them. And you had Dr. Oz for months egging him on, saying, you got to debate, you got to debate. This is how we showcase to the voters um, who's fit for office. I want to test that assumption after this debate because for many, and, and you know, normally, Corey, I would play a clip of this debate. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't want to do that. People can find it online. They can, you know, see exactly what happened. Um, but I want to talk about this concept of a debate being an accurate litmus test. We've talked about a version of this before, but Corey, give me your, your sense of it. After seeing clips of this or watching this debate where Fetterman mm -hmm. clearly struggled against Oz, where does the debate as a core construct of how we elect people, or at least a core part of uh, a proof of how we elect people, fit in your mind after, after watching this and experiencing this past week? Yeah, so can we start here? I didn't watch it. I didn't okay. watch it. Start, uh, start and, there. And my um, view of this debate is, like, in my mind, John Fetterman was beyond terrible like couldn't mm -hmm. even string a word together just based on the social media coverage of it in my mind oz wiped the floor with him and one of the things that i think feeds into your point about maybe this isn't the best way to determine how somebody should be elected particularly in a position like senate and you know the funny thing is like a senator has a different job requirement than a governor for example of course. And, or a you know, and yet we give them the same test that being the debate but 
I, I do wonder if one of the challenges is people don't watch debates and it's the meta-analysis of the debate that drives their opinions of the debate. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of people, I would imagine, even in Pennsylvania, who who have opinions about this debate, who believe that John Fetterman lost this debate and they are doing it entirely on meta-analysis, right? You know, there's people talking about the debate, oh, he did so bad and or or whatever it is. And so one of the challenges we have is this is not something where you have universal audiences to begin with. And so a lot of us read about debates and hear about debates and score debates, not based on our own feelings, but based on the feelings of the people that we, uh, you know, already agree with or, or commentators that we listen to more regularly. And that's a challenge too, right? I mean, it's not unique to debates. A lot of our news about politics is filtered through such channels, but it's, it's not, people don't really like, this is not, the entertainment it was in the 19th century where everyone would, would come from far and wide and watch a debate for four hours. Right. Yeah. It's just a thing that networks begrudgingly post. And then people pretend to watch like PBS, you know, it's like the old Nelson thing when they actually started actually checking what people were watching on their TVs instead of the journals, PBS viewership cratered because yeah. people yeah. lie. They say what they're supposed to do, which is watch public broadcasting instead of monster truck rallies or watch debates instead of, Definitely not watching debates because debates are boring. So, Carter, like this that's phenomenon, a this phenomenon yeah. of 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 the meta coverage is not unique, right? We saw this in, and let's just use this American midterm cycle as uh, as another proof point, right? Warnock versus Herschel Walker, clips out of that were 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 posted by both sides. If you if you knew anything about that Georgia debate, you probably knew that. Herschel Walker pulled out a prop, i.e. a fake police badge to indicate that he did indeed work for the police or alternatively yeah. in Ohio, J.D. Vance against Tim Ryan. Right. You probably saw that if you saw anything, I should say, you probably saw that takedown of J.D. Vance. Carter, you know, I don't want to get into that same conversation we always do around the importance of debates, et cetera, because this is different. And, and, I'll, and I'll get to what's different about this conversation in a second. But give me your thoughts here after either witnessing clips or moments of this debate, whether you did or not, from the Fetterman-Oz debate. Where do debates kind of stand in your mind? Give me your, your table set, and then I'll move on to the, to the heart of the conversation that I, that I want to focus on for this. Well, I'm not a really big fan of debates. Um, I think that especially given that debates have been restaged now by, by you know, media companies to try and make in, them into something more designed to capture a television audience. Uh, we're going to put, uh, you know, 90 second uh, answers with a 30 second rebuttal and no one's talking, you know, like they're either trying to contain it so that no one's talking over each other or they're trying to let it go so that everybody is is talking uh, over them. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to, uh, you know, Alison Redford went into a debate um, the Thursday before her leadership vote and her mother just passed on the Tuesday. Um, so, you know, that was one of those types of debates where how is Alison Redford going to lose? You know, personally, I think that John Fetterman should not have stood for Senate this year. Uh, he had a massive stroke uh, after the nomination. Um, he should have stood down and allowed someone who was healthier to 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 run for this seat. Um, but that's not the way it, it played out. And so he walked into this debate. Um, th- there are two narratives that I've heard coming out of this that favor Fetterman. Uh, one argument coming out is that Fetterman showed that he was working through it. You know, there's lots of people mm-hmm. who've, who've got family with strokes and blah, blah, blah. That's bullshit. Um, we don't, 
you know, sometimes, yes, we root for the underdog, but, you know, when you walk into the voting booth, I'm not sure that that's necessarily going to be the path. And the second uh, narrative that's kind of come out of this is that, uh, you know, Oz, when he said that uh, an abortion should be between a woman, her doctor and local elected political officials, um, you know, Oz had a clear field and somehow still managed to score on himself. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, that's, that's a little bit, you know, that at least favors Fetterman, but I just, I don't think he should have been on the field at all. You know, Corey, Carter's point is, is slowly creeping to what I want to talk about because Carter's getting to the content of it, which is these debates are rarely about the content and, and both sides of the border, right? They're really about the performance how well yeah. the line was delivered versus what was said, right? The, how nice the takedown or how clean the takedown was of J.D. Vance in 45 seconds versus the rest of the 90 minutes. Uh, you know, the the, the prop and, and, and how Warnock responded to it versus the rest of, of, of what matters in, the, in these cases. What I want to kind of jump into, and, and do, is there anyone who responds here to, to, to Carter's comments before we kind of jump into the thought exercise I want to, I want to lean into? Oh, look, I'll say I also don't much care for debates. They are so scripted. For starters, it's everybody just trying to get their canned lines out. And my biggest problem with them, though, is that we we tend to only do one now or two mm-hmm. or three, maybe. But that's it. And um, you guys know me. You know, I don't like hockey very much. It's not like I hate hockey. It's not like I'm opposed yeah. to it, but it's not my favorite sport. And the reason why it's not my favorite sport is anybody can win any day randomly. Right. Like there's mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. a lucky bounce that goes in and, it, and the randomness of hockey. I, I think if you line up the major sports. Hockey is the one where it's most likely that the person who's not expected to win wins. And a lot of people like that about hockey, and I get that. But, um, you know, my challenge is it's so much not about talent, and it's so much about the randomness of how a puck bounces off of something, a skate, you know, a crossbar, whatever it is. And I can't tell you the number of times I've been at a hockey game with a friend. I'm talking to them. I've got a beer in my hand. The light goes off. The horn goes off. And I realize I missed it. And that was the only action for like, a, a, you know, because there's only three goals that are going to be scored by that particular team. Um, debates are a bit like that. One Winning one debate really says nothing because it is mm. so, you know, random. It's so short. And the best person doesn't always win the debate. You know, if you had a best of seven series, maybe you could make an argument to me that, oh, it's showing who's the quickest and who's got the strongest command of policy. But as much as anything right now, it just tells you who had a bad burrito earlier in the day, right? There's yeah. just a randomness to these these single event debates that I loathe. And, um, you know, there are other ways to suss out some of these things if you're only going to if you're only going to do one of them. Like, I wasn't really joking about these four hour debates. They used to be much longer mm-hmm. It'd be between two people. It was way less scripted. It would go back and forth. You'd really see around hour two, probably, who actually has command of their fucking policy. And, and, and stamina and depth. It. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that in some ways, it, it was perhaps the best way we had to gauge these things 150 years ago, but I'm not really sure it's true in 2022. Well, Carter, it doesn't need to be true anymore, because this is what the <laughs> conversation is that I want to get oh, into. Good. Carter, it is the We're Halloween the Spectacular. Problem? We're giving yeah. you a magic wand, Stephen Carter. I'm giving you a magic wand to say, I want to replace debates with X. Insert here, Carter. What would you, with your strategist brain, with your political experience that you've had over decades, seeing how candidates perform, seeing what's required to do the job? You know, this is as much strategist as it is, let's say, 
beneficiary for the populace, the voter, what works for them, what's, what's, what would serve them the best. What would you start as the building blocks to replace a debate? It can be something similar to, to a debate. It can be something totally different to a debate. Um, whatever it is, it is now mandated by you. It is now mandated that this happens in the next race, that this pilot project will happen in the next state or the next province or the next country you get to choose. That's the, that's the miracle of Halloween, Stephen Carter. You get to wave <laughs> that magic wand. What would it be? Hey, what would you start hey, with? Hey, can I jump in? I ask because hey, like we're jumping. Fucking question. I'm good. Okay. I'm glad. Good. I'm saving the audience. <laughs> what are we trying to determine with it? Yeah, this is, like be, this is before this is we get to the actual thing. Like, what are we trying to measure people on? What are the things that we as voters need to know about our elected candidates before we give them the job? This is why I asked Carter with his experiences to get us started. With yeah. his experience about what matters in office, what matters in terms of how to govern, what skills are required versus what skills. We need, perhaps need to perform uh, to, to sim- symbolize. Carter, bake that into your answer. Where do you start and why? Well, I think the reason the, the reason for all of this is to determine how a person's going to govern, right? So how will they actually govern? And I, I, I think it's really interesting. You know, obviously debates are about trying to get your talking points out, right? So your talking points are X, Y, and Z, and you're, you're, they're all clever, cleverly crafted. Well, we here in North America, around the world, actually, have just gone through, uh, we're in the midst of one crisis, and we just went through another crisis, uh, you know, for the last three years. And that was how people would respond to various pandemics and the resultant inflation, right? So we're in the midst of the inflation crisis. We just went through the, the pandemic crisis. Arguably, we're still in the pandemic crisis, but we've chosen to ignore it. Um, so we move on, right? And we've, we've moved on to these you know, these are, these are the things that, that actually changed the way that our government functioned. And there was no, uh, there was no evidence of how Jason Kenney would respond. There was no evidence of how Justin Trudeau would respond. There was no evidence of how any of our elected leaders, and now we, we're, we always are doing our elections on past data, right? How would you respond to a hurricane that's already hit? Well, that's an easy one because we know what we want to hear from the, from the, from the candidates. What I'd be interested in seeing, and and I would never allow my candidate to do this if uh, if they were seeking election, but I'd love to see a case study. I'd love to see people get up there with no idea what the case study is going to be, and they reach into the hat, into the hat and they they pull out a topic, and that topic is a hypothetical situation where they have to determine how they would actually react and what so scenario steps they would like, like actually a, a case. do. Right, like a, you know, okay. Ha- you know, we, we've been seeing what happened in Uvalde, Texas, um, with elected officials and, and non-elected officials responding to gun violence. Um, how would you respond to gun violence? And actually having a situation where they have to walk us through, as an audience, what's actually going to go through their minds? Who are the experts that they're going to call in? Why are they calling those experts in? What are they wanting to hear from them? What are, how would they actually manage it? I'd love to see a case study where they actually got the opportunity to show us how they're actually going to lead in a situation or circumstance that has some reality to it. Because these debates aren't real. The debates don't tell us a damn thing about how they're actually going to govern. What they tell us is a set of tools that are valuable in politics, rhetoric, debate, uh, the ability to put your, your opponent into a corner. Those have some value. But they offer very little in the way of value to the actual elected representatives or to the to the voting public. 
So Carter, just to be clear, and Corey, I'm coming to you in a second here, your your proposal would be keep the televised portion of it, right? Like, let's well, walk me through this. Keep the televised portion of it. I assume have a moderator, yeah. but change the bulk of the time on stage. How long would this be? Would this be a couple hours for you? Would this be like a marathon, like Corey suggested, of debates of year past? What would you be waving your magic wand on in terms of time? How many would you want these to happen? Um, give me a bit more. Really I, I know I'm cool. asking to make it up, but... but yeah, m- it'd be really cool, I think, to have them do... Um, to do 30 minutes each, right? Because the reality is you're never going to get through all the way to the details. You can bring two of your key staff with you um, and you're going to work with your key staff and you're going to, you get like 10 minutes of preparation and then you're going to go through how you would actually respond to this like a tabletop real, exercise. Right, yeah. a table, you know, like where they're going to, you know, like the president of the United States is tested on how he or she would manage a nuclear reaction. How would you do that? How would you deal with, you know, you're, the, you're going to be the state senator. Um, senator, how would you deal with the following situation, right? You've got a piece of legislation coming through and, you know, um, the clock is ticking on the debt ceiling, right? How would you deal with it? What information would you want to see? Um, how are you not going to play politics, but how are you going to actually pr- protect the people of Pennsylvania so that we actually know that when we go to work the next day, it, it, it actually functions and give us a 10 minute reaction to it not a you know here's my 30 second speech who are you going to listen to why are you going to listen to those people and uh what questions you're going to ask what answers you're looking for i think that that might be i mean i don't like i say i don't think i'd ever recommend it to my clients but i do think that if you really want to get to the to the bottom it may be terrible television uh but i think it would actually give us some answers as to how people are going to behave in real difficult situations Corey, i'm going to turn this over to you Give me a reaction to what you heard from Carter in terms of how he'd remodel or uh, from the ground up uh, the the debate, if he could replace it with something. And then give me yours. What would you wave a magic wand on to to replace the, the debate with? I like a lot of what he said. Um, and maybe maybe I'll just jump right here and I'll go back. But sure. a lot of what he's described are, is not so different from hiring for any other role. You know, it's mm-hmm. almost like a job interview. And, and in fact, maybe an interview is a big component of this, right? But the case study, the idea that you give a 30-minute presentation or lecture or PowerPoint almost, right, on a different topic, maybe we should be throwing in background check and maybe there should be this public expectation of background checks that, that have somewhat drifted away in the past, right? So whether that be yeah. criminal, whether that be credit, all of that, depending on the nature of the role. And, uh, and maybe there is like a formal resume component. Um, God knows hiring is not perfect, but I think that there's actually a lot from the HR world we can lean on here. But, you know, for me, I continue to be sitting on before you decide how you're going to measure someone, you better decide what you're measuring. So let me let me tell you what I think you need to know about a candidate before mm. you select them for office. That's great. Not necessarily a complete list. I'm sure that we could all add to it here. Let's start with like your philosophy, what you believe, what you want to do. So almost the things you will do day one day. You know, I actually think debate's a pretty shit format for that. But that's one of the things you try to get out in a debate. Like this is who I, you know, this is what I believe. You know, I am liberal. I'm a conservative. I'm a socialist, whatever it may be. The next thing you try to show is wisdom. And, and by that, I mean depth of information on files. So the background that you bring into it, command of files, because that's what you're going to rely on when you actually have to have to then deal with situations as they come up. You, you're going to say, well, I've been there before. Well, I've got this degree. Well, I worked in this various situation that would s- mm-hmm. be somewhat relevant there. So that I, I'm going to call that wisdom. 
And I do draw a line from that to intelligence, which I'll call mental acuity as well, right? And that's yeah. really important for me because Carter's right. So much about the job is not what you plan to do. It's how you react to what actually happens. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. we've got a global mm -hmm. pandemic. You don't want a dumbass there, right? You want somebody who's <laughs> able to process information, new information, synthesize it with that wisdom that they've brought in and put together something that's fairly coherent and then is able to react quickly. So that's all kind of sensible. But then you've also got the other things uh, that we often call the, I'd like to have a beer with them. Tests, right, right, right. Like, yeah. So yeah. there's compassion and empathy. What do they care about? Who do they care about? How much do they care? That's something that we try to get out of a debate. I think that's a bit of a bullshit exercise, but that's one of the things we try to do. And then temperament. Are they going to lose it? We talked a lot about this with Donald Trump, right? Can he control himself? Can he maintain it? Can he keep it together? Are they going to fall to pieces in the crucible? And you guys were talking about tabletops. How many CEOs have we seen fall apart during tabletop exercises? Oh, yeah. Too many. Too right. many. Too yeah, many. We'll never yeah. reveal any of the company yeah. names, but way too many. And the you companies are sometimes way too big. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and then there's two things that I think debates don't actually give us any insight in or very yes. little at the most. Uh, although the Fetterman example cuts against health, right? You know, arguably there are examples where we've elected people who are very unwell and we just did not know mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, ethics. And I believe debate does nothing really on that front besides if they just act like a shit heel, but it doesn't tell you if they've comported themselves in an ethical fashion. So you know, like, I think you could make that list longer, but philosophy, wisdom, intelligence, compassion, temperament, health, ethics, there's a pretty reasonable start. The debate gives us glancing blows at all of this. And, and I guess the point I want to underline is there's probably not one thing we can do that will provide us all this information. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. if we can think about this in terms of like a bundle of things that inform voters, we can cover off a lot of them with things like Stephen's idea of the, you know, the presentation or having an interview or giving them a case study. Um, and there's things that we can do that legislated. Like you must provide your last three years of income tax returns, or you must provide a public version of this background form. Because, you know, these are all your employers here if you're going to be premier. I'm not saying every MLA, perhaps, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but perhaps for the most senior jobs. And um, yeah, I, I think in general, debate is probably going to only give you a good reading on the intelligence one, on the mental acuity. I think debate kind of sucks for the rest of it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Corey, can you run that list through one more time just so for, for listeners and for myself so I can document? You got philosophy, wisdom, and then take it from there. Yeah. Compassion, temperament, health, ethics. Temperament, health, ethics. Fascinating. And I, and I agree with a lot of this. Hard to disagree, Carter. Your reaction to this, and then there's something Carter said that I want to get both of your thoughts on that I thought was really interesting. But Carter, this framework that Corey's presented around the baseline of, of what you need. Does this work yeah. with your with your format? Yeah, I think that some of it does. Uh, I mean, my mm. format is is primarily designed to to get at that temperament and to get and to showcase the skills that the person will be bringing to the table. You know, we, you know, I think that the other questions are who will you ultimately surround yourself with? I mean, and those those questions are so easily batted away uh, by most premiers. Yeah, I mean, judgment. And, yeah, yeah, right. and, like, and this there's is a judgment and, thing that's missing. And yeah. this can I this is exactly what I want to jump on. And Corey, maybe I'll I'll interrupt you there, Carter. Get your reaction to this, Corey. Carter's exercise includes bringing on other people. And I think for the longest time, yeah. and you might you guys might disagree, that these debates were all about 
I and I alone. And Frank, I shouldn't say they were. They still are. Me yeah. and me alone. I will do this. I can do this. And 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 anyone who's known government knows that you distribute a lot of the successes, but you also have to distribute a lot of the responsibility, even if it's a strong PMO or a strong presidency or a strong premier's office. Talk to me about this concept of in this format, showcasing your ability to work with others, whether handed to you or chosen by you um, to it. kind of drive to conclusions I and outcomes. Absolutely fucking love it. Um, you know, when we were talking about the Ontario debate, one of the things that was lighting my hair on fire was that you had uh, Horvath and Del Duca talking about what an outrage it was that uh, Ford had a binder. And yes, maybe it was a violation of the rules. Yeah. But yeah. my point then, and I'll make it again, is it's it's kind of dumb to say you can't have a binder. Do you think that the premier does not have a binder in front of them when they're in a briefing? Like it's it's not unreasonable for somebody to have briefing materials here. Yeah. So I think yeah. the more you can make it like the real job, the better. And in the real job, you have a team, right? This is like one of those bullshit high school math exams you'd have where they'd say no calculators. Yeah. When in your fucking life are you ever not going to have a calculator, right? Yeah, yeah. Your premier, when are you not going to have your team? When are you not going to have a binder? And uh, we should get rid of these conceits um, because it's much more like the real job if you provide those tools. Carter, you know, one of the things that I, I feel like, and Corey's list is, is great. One of the things I feel like is required in these jobs, and, and I kind of maybe will broaden the, the framework here from beyond politics to, to maybe these executive leadership jobs, is synthesis, right? Is taking a mountain of information and finding the nugget of insight or the nugget of um, uh, truth, so to speak, uh, that helps you make a decision or that helps you kind of say, okay, so to be clear, X leads to Y, which leads to Z. Are we right? And everyone kind of says, yes, that is actually right. But and he's like, okay, so then we should do option A. And people are like, yes, okay, that makes sense. How many times have we seen that a good leader has that skill, Carter, to take thousands of pages, hundreds of pages, mountain of information, and drive to a clear-eyed conclusion? Well, I mean, that's that's ultimately what we're aiming for here. Because, yes, yes. I mean, I often talk about how in the premier's office, there's no such thing as an easy easy choice, right? Mm -hmm. The 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 50%, you know, the, the 90 Ninety ten decisions are made by by low level frontline staff. The 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 seventy five twenty five are made by ADMs and and managers. And then you get the you know the deputy ministers are making most of the you know seventy thirty type things, and the ministers are making the your sixty forties. The stuff that lands on the premier's desk, the the stuff that lands on the governor's desk, the stuff that goes to the mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that stuff is all going to be in the fifty one forty nine category. Right. Yes. You know, we had power blackouts uh, during the the, Red, the Redford days. Um, we had power blackouts. We were browning out industry in order to ensure that people were getting electricity. You have any idea how complicated that is? What do you want to do? do? You know, do you want to increase rates on people? Do you want to encourage, you know, allow the blackouts to continue? Do you want the blackouts to, you know, to stop? How are you going to make this all happen given these competing objectives. Do you want to shut down residents? Do you want 10,000 residences yeah, to not yeah, have yeah. power? Or do you want to shut down some, uh, some power in uh, industrial Alberta, right? Which do you want to do? Both have a consequence. Yeah, now you got to yeah. choose between those. These aren't an easy decision. This is why I landed on the premier's desk. And I'll tell you something. It took me forever to figure it out. Um, 
And I, you know, not just me, but I was the one in the briefing with all the senior bureaucrats because the premier was out shaking everybody's hand, kissing all the babies, making sure that all of the stuff that the public view was being taken care of. And so I would get briefed. The deputy minister would be briefing me. The, you know, we would have all these different smart people and then we would synthesize the problem, come mm-hmm. back to it and say, okay, we're agreed. This is our best solution. And our best solution often wasn't a good solution. It was the best yeah. we could manage. You know, Corey, I, I kind of want to throw one more curveball into this as we kind of talk about synthesis. It's it's fair to almost say that that these debates, as they're structured right now, they disproportionately oversample rhetoric or or the ability to 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 lead through oratory, to, to lead through persuasion. How important? And I, and I, and this is almost an aside, but it doesn't have to be because this is an open format. What would you do if you could replace debates? How important in your mind? For political leaders, is the written word? Is there ability oh, to communicate yeah. on paper? <laughs> is there ability to kind of communicate? And it kind of leads into the conversation of synthesis and distilling. And I don't mean flowery rhetoric. I mean clear-eyed sort of executive-style thinking uh, yeah. around how you would take that hundred pages and mount it down to the one paragraph conclusion. In your mind, how important is that from what you've seen? And is there a way that we could test that? Um, for, for our leaders. And you might say, listen, it's less important in politics than in other executive jobs, but I want to open up that question for both of you and, and get your take on it. Because as many of us realize that it really comes down to, yes, your ability to orate one to a thousand, one to a million in certain cases, but it's two things. It's the one to small communication that we've talked about before, the one to the room of 10, but then something we actually don't talk about a lot, which is your ability in the written word to be clear-eyed and persuasive um, with your communications. So I actually don't believe it's very important at all. Mm. Um, I, I'm thinking back on my almost four years in government, and I can't think of a premier writing anything down that I was like, okay, I need this, and, I, and I've got to deal with this. Such an ephemeral job for them, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is making decisions and providing your judgment in the moment. And once the decision's made, it falls to others to articulate it. And, and a lot of the time, it's them reacting to the written word. It's, it's the briefing notes that yeah. come from those deputy ministers, Stephen Carter was talking about, the de- briefing notes that come from their chiefs of staff, uh, which is not to say that premiers can't write. Um, both Jason Kenney and Rachel Notley are very good writers, but it's not, um, it's not actually, I think, the most important part of the job. It is, it is the decision-making that's important, mm. not, the, not the articulation. Uh, in the written word, right? Like the requirement is to articulate in a different sense and convey. And, you know, one of the things I think we've all probably found in our lives is sometimes when I'm having trouble writing something, I'll just, actually, I'll I'll use this example. I I would often say to clients, right, when they were really, like they'd write something down or they'd be putting a brief together and I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Yes. I would just ask them to talk to me. And then they would come out and like, 15 seconds, right? Yes. It's a real art to actually write something down. And we're much better at conveying things through a spoken word than we are written word, because we can lean on body language and tone and you know, just so much more that's available to you. And that's the, to the skill set really that, um, that uh, politicians rely on. It's, it's nowadays, a, nobody's reading, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a very interesting point. But in some ways, you know, Corey, you've probably experienced this in your, in your executive world that having a CEO or an executive who can be clear in their communications, super important in that world, right? Whereas politics, perhaps slightly different. 
um, in that sense. And I, and I know there's caveats to all this. Carter, you know, I want to get your take. Corey makes a really good point here. No, from our workflow, I know, I know how you work because we've worked together for a while, but you're a phone call guy, right? You're like a short texting, but yeah, phone call guy. Like, I'm a I've writer. Be- you're I've not become a writer. that. I've become that yeah. too in many ways. And to Carter's mold, like even in my day to day, it's really about picking up the phone being like, can we just hash this out? Because it's going to take me much longer to write it. And I, it probably won't be as clear eyed than I can, you know, kind of probably explain it to you over the phone. But Carter, talk to me about this. Let's round out the conversation here. The written word as it relates to our leaders, Corey says, overrated in that sense in terms of a skill to perhaps test. Do you disagree or do you agree? I totally agree. I mean, when I, if I was mm. asked, would you rather have a, a, a premier or a leader that can write or one who can read? I would take reading a thousand <laughs> right. times. part of synthesis, right? Right, well, right, right. Well, I mean, the ability to, so you're getting these, these briefings. And inside the briefings, uh, oftentimes there will be a line. A, a a note or just something that's not even highlighted. Um, and understanding that one tidbit of information is the difference between understanding what's happening and not understanding what's happening. And I need the premier to be able to read that and understand that. If you are talking to the premier afterwards uh, and trying to explain the decision-making matrix that you're setting up um, and that decision-making matrix um, is misunderstood because they missed that one line. They missed that one point that was really important. And then you have to go and explain it. First of all, no one likes explaining to the premier, right? Mm-hmm, you're explaining mm-hmm. to the premier, you're, you've got big problems because it almost sounds like you're talking down to them, right? When you're explaining to them, you, the, the briefing note was there. The briefing note's supposed to do what it's supposed to do, right? It's supposed mm-hmm, to carry mm-hmm. this work for you. And if it doesn't, if they've missed the point of the briefing note because they don't have the reading comprehension or they just didn't, they didn't care enough to really understand it, man, you've got real problems. I don't need them to write a briefing note. I don't need them to write a memo about the briefing note. They can sit down with me and, uh, and say, this is what's going to happen. Boom. That's what's going to happen. Um, you don't need that written word. You need them to understand and then be able to articulate very clearly what their expectations are and then you've got yourself a partnership we're going to leave that segment there that segment of course brought to us by our sponsor flair airlines flair airlines it's a horror every night let's move it on to our next segment our next segment boo to you from our 44 billion dollar crew guys as part of our halloween special we want to talk about things that make your skin crawl Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan, Elon Musk now officially owns Twitter, and he's wasting no time in his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter as its chief twit. He's already changed the homepage. He has now asked for, uh, by November 7th, which is next uh, which is next Monday, Monday after next, to have a new $20 a month subscription to keep your verification, your blue check. Uh, so that applies to you, too. Uh, certainly. Yeah, um, yeah. He's moving fast and he's breaking things, Corey. This is what they've said in the tech world. This is how you move. This is what you're supposed to do. Well, he's moving fast with his $44 billion company. There's always um, some things that are going to break. But give me a sense of your first days of Elon Musk owning Twitter. And then I want to start talking a bit about a few of the things I mentioned during and including some of the hate speech comments that we've now seen take a bit of a, a meteoric rise, correlation, causation, uh, for Elon's, uh, and as part of Elon's reign. But give me your first, your analysis of Elon's first days as, uh, as Twitter's new owner and, and chief twit. Well, maybe as a bridge from the last one, can I just say the one area where politicians do write routinely these days is Twitter, right? That <laughs> Good is point. You're seeing that, right? And um, 
and by the way, just as almost an aside on the way here, I'm a huge believer in the value of writing. You, you, you kind of put some words in my mouth in terms of whether I thought it was a useful skill or not. Mm. I just, I've never seen politicians do it. They lean so heavily on the other side, but uh, I Good believe point. Good synthesis point. Yeah, yeah, to be is clear. strongest when you write, right? Like you really have to know what the hell you're talking about to put it on paper. You have to know the pros, the cons, all of that there. Now, in terms of Elon Musk and in terms of uh, his first couple of days in Twitter, I, I mean, in some ways you said it's the, you know, the, the tech bro way almost of doing this. Yeah. But yeah. it's the opposite of everything they will teach you in a management textbook about how you're supposed to deal with people. Uh, he, he came in uh, after musing about laying off 75% of the workforce. He's now said it won't be that. There was some reporting that layoffs of maybe up to 50% started on the mm -hmm. weekend. There was a suggestion that if he doesn't, and this is, by the way, there's reporting on this. I'm not, I can't say it's 100% confirmed yet. But this idea that if they don't get in this idea of being able to bill for verification within yes. by November 7th, they're fired, right? Yes. I mean, like that's, if, the, that's... if the team that's developing this new feature within the product that is known as yeah. Twitter, if they don't do it and they don't have it up and running, they're going to be all fired. Yes. I mean, that's crazy, right? And it, it creates this kind of collective responsibility where anybody who's worked on a development team will know sometimes there's bottlenecks, right? And sometimes it's one person. You could have the world's best team and one idiot and Elon Musk seems to think, well, I'll just fire them all, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not, that's not really how these things should work. And, uh, and I, I feel like he is, I think the problem with any smart, talented person is that they can believe their own press. And when you are the richest person in the world, that's probably triply so. And, you know, part of me thinks the basic idea of, of charging for verification, I, I mean, not the craziest idea. I, I joked online that the blue check's an indicator that you're bad with money now is what this is going to mean. But mm -hmm. in reality, there's about half a million blue checks. And uh, of those, about a quarter are journalists. Conceivably, their company is going to pay for them. Conceivably, most of the people who are verified were verified on behalf of either business interests or journalistic interests or whatnot. And they'll probably find a way to get it paid by somebody else. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. not a, let's just say half a million, like, like they don't go any bigger, but they just keep that half million and let's pretend they get a hundred percent conversion. It's $120 million a year. Not a crazy idea, but to execute it in this way and in such a antagonizing way within your own company and the amount of churn that's going to create, I don't, I don't even know where to start with this Zane. Like, I mean, this is, this is some madman action here. And, um, and uh, I, I just, I'm not convinced it'll work with an organization that feels like they're under such epic threat. Carter, let's, let's talk about this a bit more. <laughs> uh, this particular thread Corey's introduced yeah. around, and we can, we can keep talking about Elon Musk's management style and, 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 and his philosophy here as well. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to talk about this, and this is reporting, but let's jump on it because I think it's quite interesting. And it, and, it, and it seems to me credible reporting for a couple of reasons. Number one, the sourcing seems to be uh, from a reputable sort of tech publication. But secondly, Carter, $20 a month to get verified um, seems very much, uh, and keep your verification, seems very much in Elon Musk's sort of general wheelhouse of A, revenue generation, but B, this free speech, right? Like, you know, you, you, you got to, if you want to keep your verification, um, you know, you got to pay for it and uh, perhaps not necessarily recognizing the downside risk of that, which is that if you're no longer verified, but you were a verified source, there could be some implications to that. Let's say you're one of the journalists who works at a small publication. You can't afford this. 
Um, so you lose your verification and now you're just, uh, you know, you don't get to rise above, so to speak, uh, with your, your news stories, uh, not in terms of viewership, but in terms of credibility about the information and the quality of your sourcing. You're kind of just part of the chaff, so to speak. Carter, talk to me about the, the, the potential, and you might think I'm, I'm overblowing them. Talk, talk to me about the potential democratic um, civil society ramifications around, um, you know, this, this particular move by, by Elon Musk um, that, that we might see. Well, I couldn't have disagree with Corey Moore. Um, mm. You know, the, the idea that, that uh, you're going to pay now. So the, the, the previous way to get verified was you had to be kind of a, you know, you had to be a journalist. You had to be, a, you have to have a job within government. You had to have some sort of a verify. You had to be using your real name or something vaguely yep, resembling yep. your real name. Uh, you had to show that you had information that was essentially verifiable. And by putting that information into into the the internet, into Twitter, you are sharing with people information that has value. And people could go and say, well, you're a blue check mark. You're using your real name. I trust where that information is coming from. Now, mm-hmm. Musk is saying, well, we don't actually want that. We don't actually want people yes. to trust where this is coming from. And on top of that, Corey's talking about the 20 or the, the half million people who are currently verified. What about the half million lunatics that are on the other side of this that now want to get themselves verified? And they put a little blue check mark beside. And now the same privilege that Corey and I have that you don't have for very good reason, <laughs> for very, yeah, good for reason, very good reason, shows yeah. that, you know, you've bought yours and the drivel that comes out of your mouth is going to have now the same, the same weight that comes from Corey and I. This, and, this is almost the. The point, the blue check has has only ever meant verified identity. People see it as something more than that. And that's actually been quite dangerous. So I'm not so fussed with people all of a sudden thinking a blue check is something you can just buy. You're on my time now. You're on my time now. (laughs) Bottom line, this is worse for, for Twitter and worse for the democratic ideals of sharing information. Now, literally any idiot, and I can't believe now, now that we're talking about this, I can't believe Hogan's fucking verified listening to this drivel that's coming out of his mouth about this. I you actually know, don't I, know how you're verified. I was a government official. That's why I'm verified. Yeah, well, why Carter are you was a government official. I mean, Big he got in in the 15 minutes deal. he was there. Were, minute one, get were. verified. Yeah, once you're verified, <laughs> you are always verified. You know, like, don't start with me. Anyways, well, the un- point being that this is a, this is Musk undermining free you know free speech which is hilarious it's free but it's going to cost you 20 bucks if you're verified and it's not going to cost the people who aren't verified anything and and to me this is this is all about him undermining expertise i mean look at the number of bullshit tweets he's put up just in the 72 hours that he's owned this shit you know his own team pulled one of his tweets down today um you know this is you know, Elon Musk isn't the Elon Musk that we all thought we knew and respected. Um, but I'm not giving back my Tesla. I'm just letting you know where that stands. Thank you, Carter. Really appreciate that. Yeah, really important. Um, Corey, there's a lot of lessons to be here, learned here around like management, around philosophy, around that. You've mentioned a few of them. There's also lessons to be learned here around like what the future might hold for this platform. And you know, one of the things I find quite interesting is is a lot of uh, individuals. Uh, and we've seen waves of this in the past, I'll caveat, but a lot of individuals, some verified, some not, um, mostly with progressive leanings, are saying, I'm not here for this shit. They're leaving the platform. Do you suspect that this is, like, has Twitter become a public square? And I know this is an age-old question, and by age-old, I mean over the last decade. Uh, but is this, is this, you know, 
a a a a inflection moment where people leaving the platform um from a strict political perspective as we now dig down into our area of expertise would you advise people to leave this platform is it too much of a public square to have your voice heard and amplified and 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 key points of either policy or or or, uh politics to be made that um you would advise whether it be a client a, a a political figure a political party to to not leave the platform what do you think well, I think that when we think about social media, we should think about why they act the way they do and why mm-hmm. things like Twitter have been free, why things like Facebook are free. Of course. And there's the old cynical answer, you are the product. And that's that's sort of true. But I don't think it's true in the way that a lot of other people mean it. Um, these things have value because of their size. It's what we call the network effect. Right. right. And uh, being on a social media platform of 100 people has a lot less value to you than being on a social media platform of 100 million. And Twitter is big. And so, you know, a lot of people can make comments about, oh, I'm going to leave Twitter. But uh, to be honest, I've seen fewer of those than like, well, I'm also going to get a Mastodon account or or people seeming to hedge because Uh they know. know, Forget public square. I don't care. Maybe it's just Mall of America, a giant private square, right? But it's giant and there's value to its size. And people don't want to walk away and lose the things that they've got. Think about Stephen Carter, poor Stephen Carter, with his 15,000 Twitter followers. What would he do if he couldn't share his thoughts with those 15,000 people? He's not going to leave, right? And so I don't think the risk is that Twitter dies instantly. It's that Elon Musk's decisions make Twitter such an awful place that everybody just gradually Mm. drifts away, right? It becomes this place like, uh, you know. Well, frankly, Facebook or or so many other unappealing places on the internet where they seem crammed with ads. Nobody's very interested in hanging out on them, uh, except for like a very extreme cadre, which he seems to be gearing himself towards. Um, that's the risk. You know, we, we talked about Elon Musk coming in and making decisions that no business text would tell you to do. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk is clearly trying to build a culture at Twitter. I think it's sure. a pretty toxic one based on the first couple of days here. But he is he's clearly signaling this is the kind of place Twitter will be. But he's not just signaling that to employees. He's signaling that, I think, to Twitter. And there's going to be a Twitter culture that evolves from some of these decisions he's making as well. And culture doesn't happen overnight. Culture takes time. So um, huge value right now. Will there be huge value tomorrow? Maybe a little less, maybe a little less every single day until people make the decision to disengage from it. But there's not going to be that light switch moment. That's my firm belief. Carter, would you advise a a political candidate based on their ideals? Let's say they're not in line with Elon Musk's, like at least what he's expressed prior to the the official closing of the purchase, a free reign, free speech sort of platform. Would you advise anyone and under what circumstances to leave Twitter as a platform? Or is it too much of a public square these days, Carter? I wouldn't advise them to leave Twitter now Mm. the same way I wouldn't advise them to leave Facebook now. But I do note that Facebook isn't the platform today that it once was. And we can see that through Meta's stock drop, right? We we can see that people aren't using Facebook. Uh, We're we're getting less and less response when we advertise on Facebook. I mean, we barely advertised on Twitter to begin with because it was such a, you know, it was a a lesser, a lesser light than... uh, then you know it's it's more popular cousins or more uh, you know easier to to use. I mean, have you guys been on TikTok recently? I don't know if you guys are following, but that TikTok thing has way more ads than Twitter. <laughs> no, seriously, I've been I, I've been popping you know, like in you... and out. 
And you get an ad maybe every six or seven videos. That must be so frustrating for you. You get five thirst traps and then like one uh, like one ad on your phone. I'm not allowed page, to yeah. talk about thirst traps anymore in the house. That apparently is a topic <laughs> that is off limits. Um, I learned that today. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you, th- this is this is actually, you know, will everybody leave Facebook or will everybody leave Twitter no, no one ever leaves these things. What you do is mm-hmm. you evolve away from them and something else comes along and you evolve into that. We all thought that Snapchat would be the next great thing. We all thought, you know, that um, Bebo, you know, was going to be huge. Uh, none of these things, you know, it, you don't predict them. You just, when they get there, you ride the wave when they're there. And social medias, social mediums aren't going to be... Um, you know, one and done forever. You know, we're not we're not going to see Facebook thirty years from now being as dominant as Facebook was uh, in the last fifteen years. Carter, such a great point. Like it, mm-hmm. it's not about it's not about I'm here now. I'm not here. I'm there. Uh, any organization of any size, including any political campaign, is going to just slowly adjust those dials over time. Right? They're not getting what they want out of this one as much, so they're going to invest less time and less money there, and they're going to turn up a dial somewhere else. And very rarely do you just spike the dial all the way down again, because of that network effect, you've got, you've put investments into these things. And so you'd be walking away from those investments, the investments that have built your audiences and have built your brand in these spaces. You just, you just slowly use them less. Yeah. I mean, but we we are using Facebook a ton less. I mean, already you can see that this thing that was, was so unbelievably dominant. No one's ever going to leave Facebook. Yeah. We're still all there, but we're not spending money the way we used to fascinating points we're going to leave that segment there moving on to our final segment Stephen carter our over under in our lightning round trick or treat edition Hang on. is this happening this is so quick today this was not quick this was trust me we've got things to talk about we've got four shit. minutes left carter we've got four this minutes was... left you know what that means oh, you know what that good. means carter yeah here we go yeah well, well i'm up means, by carter? eight points and the well, first of us to get to you're not up by you know, eight nine points. additional points is I crushed you in that last round. We're not going to explain this to anyone, are we? We're not going to explain this to anybody. This is just for us. This is just so widely known. It is extremely widely known. The Elam rule. We're not going to talk about it. (laughs) Fine. I'm still jealous that I don't own a basketball team. That's all I'm going to say. Stephen Carter over under lightning round trick or treat edition. Stephen Carter, a looming recession might be on the way for Canada and the U.S. Krista Freeland is set to give her fall economic statement on November 3rd. Will this be a trick, Stephen Carter? Will it be a, a tricky situation for her? Or will it be a treat for Christopher Freeland to deliver this fall economic statement? It's a, it's absolutely going to be a, a trick. It's it's super hard to imagine t- knowing where we're going in the uh, in the coming weeks or months. And, um, you know, not all the countries necessarily going to move at the same rate at the same time either. I mean, I think we can see... Uh, some you know good good things happening in Western Canada and some harder things happening in the rest of the country. Corey Hogan, this might be an easy one. Trick or treat. Krista Freeland giving the fall economic update. Is it going to be a trick for her? Is it going to be tricky for her? Or is this going to be a treat for her to deliver? I think I think it's going to be tricky. I there's there's I I've always said on this show, and I'm going to reiterate. I think it is very hard to rein in inflation and not create a recession. I, the idea mm. of reining in inflation without a recession is a story we tell ourselves to sleep yeah. at night. But the reality is landing that plane in that way is nigh impossible. And 
you are almost certainly going to overswing, especially when you're coming down from the percents that we are in inflation. The challenge is, as we've seen it, particularly in the UK, but all over the place, including here in Canada, Mm -hmm. is that when we have our central banks essentially trying to cool down the economy at the same time our governments are trying to heat up the economy, chaos can ensue. So it's just a tough one for her. It's a tough one for any finance minister. I don't envy her. Stephen's right. We've also got challenges in that it's a very uneven feeling across the country. In Saskatchewan, basically everything they sell is is through the roof. You know, the economy's going gangbusters. Here in Alberta, the, even though the price of oil's come down a bit, we've certainly seen economic growth. Uh, meanwhile, when you look in Ontario, some of the things that we're seeing as boons are, or maybe not boons for everybody, but if you're a homeowner, housing prices were up, now they're coming down. Mm. There's all of a sudden, uh, with that, house building is down, all sorts of things are down. Challenge. Corey, I'm going to stick with you for our next one. You know, I mentioned earlier that next Tuesday, the uh, United States goes to the polls. The Americans go to the polls for their midterms. Uh, you're hearing a lot around the end game strategy for the Democrats in particular uh, with this term that many people may not be familiar with called deep canvassing. Have you guys heard of this? This 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 term of rather than just simply door knocking yeah. in the final days, going door to door canvassing but actually encouraging empathetic, deep conversations to shift people's beliefs, uh, using this in the final week or so to, to kind of move the vote, especially in these close areas, including the Pennsylvanias, Ohio's, and Georgia's that we've talked about. Corey, trick or treat, deep, deep canvassing as, as a political tactic or strategy. Is it, is it a bit of a trick or is it actually quite a treat in the sense that it is a, a useful political tactic? You know, this comes up every couple of years. I believe a lot of this deep canvassing work comes from a study that was done about changing people's minds about same-sex marriage, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken. And uh, they found that it was very successful. And in some ways, I want to shake those people and say, holy shit, really, when we have in-depth conversations with people, instead of these grazing by them, just asking who they're going to vote for. (laughs) These transactional conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a shocking outcome. But I, I think it's going to be a treat. I think people are coming around to the idea that the conventional wisdom we built, people, you know, we didn't create this, but Stephen and I would be saying this for years. You know, you don't try to change minds at the door. Just identify them. The whole mm-hmm, idea is mm-hmm. just to get more of your people out on election day. That was the purpose of that kind of canvas. But we have retreated to these camps as a result. And I think deep canvassing and tactics like it are how we're going to find some sort of balance again in the system. And so... Um, I'm hoping it's successful for a lot of people and not because I'm hoping that it means one side wins or the other, but because inevitably it means we're talking to each other in a way we Mm. simply have not been for a very long time. By the way, you might find this fun. Just as a little tidbit, you know, uh, that just deep canvassing was also the name of Stephen Carter's OnlyFans. uh, Oh, yes. Deep underscore canvassing. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it was it was taken down. Speaking of thirst traps, Carter, <laughs> talk to me about talk to me about deep canvassing. Actually, you know, more specifically, Carter, I'll, I'll add a little bit of a finer point on it. Talk to me about deep canvassing in the end game, right? So we sit here Sunday, October third. The election's November eighth. Trick or treat, given the framework and the timeline. It's a slightly different question I asked Corey, but I'm, I'm going to ask you this: uh, trick or treat, given that the end game timeline that the that the uh, the race stands in right now. Well, I don't believe that anybody would sit and talk to you prior to the end game because of the give a fuck factor. I am good right? point. Interesting. Their, their Interesting. give a fuck factor is going to be just too low about a looming election 
Um, so if you've already got a position, if you already are voting for some one of them, you're still going to get that PFO right at the door. Um, and yeah. you'll be told to leave, and that'll be th- that'll be the end of that particular conversation. Which, by the but way, PFO, you, can we explain to people? Please flare off, right? Just so um, please flare people, off. Yeah, it's yeah, um, perfect. Thank you. Yeah, just brought so to you by Flare Airlines. Uh, yeah, get there faster. That's actually um, not a terrible not, slogan. Not, not <laughs> please flare PFO. off. PFO, yeah, not bad. Yeah. Please flare off is actually not, just yeah. that's actually one of the okay. better ideas we're gonna, we've given them for we're free. We're going to build more this month, guys. Bill more. Um, <laughs> Listen, um, yes, but so you're saying that the timing this is, is actually the only interesting. Time. Yeah, yeah. Brett's interesting. Yeah, because, and I'll tell you, we just, um, coming back again from British Columbia, where we got our asses handed to us, one of the things we've been talking a lot about is uh, voter identification modeling, because we had outstanding data, and we thought we had a very, very reasonable chance. But when you look back and you go back at the data, what we were getting was, um, yeah, of course we're going to vote for you. Now get the fuck off my lawn. Um, and that type of data I think is more and more prevalent as people start to figure out that this is the actual, you know, you are the product as Corey was saying about, uh, about mm. Facebook, people are figuring out that, that they are the product in these discussions and they're being, um, they know that they can just simply say, yeah, I'm with you. And they no longer have to speak to, to the team. And for my money, that's actually, you know, that's the, that's way worse than trying to do a bunch of uh, deep targeting and deep discussions about, you know, the future of, uh, of our society. I think that the deep canvas actually then holds up very, very well. Corey, I'll give you the, the same opportunity here if you want to talk about deep canvassing as it relates to the end game strategy. Carter's saying, ultimately, yeah, it is the perfect time because that's the only time that you're going to get the engagement level or the give a fuck factor as the race becomes closer and closer and more relevant um, to people's lives rather than being something that that plays around in the background for, for months. Your thoughts on that? A lot of, lot of logic in that. Um, I think that's something I'd like to see some testing on. How How durable is it if you have it six months out? Because I would imagine if you want to go really deep with your deep canvassing, you would actually have a relationship where you come back multiple times, see how they're doing, continue to answer questions, really, truly build a relationship. Maybe that's like uh, deep canvassing 2.0, and maybe it's something that people should explore. I think one of the things that often happens when you get to this point in a campaign, especially a campaign that has quite a long runway, like a US campaign here, is you also, um, you sometimes hit a saturation point with your voter ID. Right. You've you phoned as many people are going to answer the phones as they're going to answer as many people are going to mm-hmm, answer the doors mm-hmm. and tell you is going to answer and tell you. And the diminishing returns mean it becomes more appealing to try these tactics, too. So could be some good alignment. It really depends on the campaign. I also know campaigns that crash up until the last minute trying to get this voter ID. But I've worked on campaigns where with a week left, you're like, well, voter ID is coming in and a trickle. now. Yeah. It's not really changing. So why not try something else? And you've got all these volunteers. They're as keyed up as they're going to be because, as Stephen said, the give a fuck factor is the highest for everyone, including your volunteers. So why not try something like this? Stephen Carter, I'm going to move on to our next question. Is this a trick or a treat for the federal liberals? The cost of the Arrive Can app, Carter, many saying, including the opposition, that this thing could have been built for less than a million bucks, not its projected $55 million cost. Now, in the grand scheme of pandemic spending, this was a drop in the bucket. But as we talk about quite often, it's not that we know what $54 million looks like. We know what an app looks like. We know what its functionality was. We can kind of ballpark that as layman, so to speak. 
Is this a trick for the liberals? Is this pretty tricky or is this going to be a, a a slightly palatable, maybe not so tasty treat that they can they can stomach at the end of the day? It's 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 a trick and a treat. Uh, and I'm going to tell you why. The, it, it's a trick because we all know, uh, you know, we all know we could build this app for a lot less. I think the three of us would be able to commit. Well, and when I say the three of us, I mean, Corey, uh, to build this app for a lot I'll less. Probably money. build it tonight. Yeah, he'll, he'll have it ready by tomorrow morning. Um, but we weren't oh, dealing you know, with you know, the bureaucracy. Sorry, I know, Corey, I know a billionaire that may want to hire you. Um, keep going, yeah. Carter. We, we weren't dealing with the bureaucracy. We weren't dealing with the panic. We weren't dealing with all the various challenges that were coming forward. And frankly, I think this is where the, the treat comes in. People have a really hard time relating to $54 million. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a way easier time relating to a $16 glass of orange juice or $1,000 a month for a committee meeting that never happened. Um, those types of things that people can immediately relate to are far more, far more damaging than it costs $54 million to produce a, an app um, that most people don't know how to build an app. They have no, they have no uh, comparatives. Um, so maybe it hurts in the industry. Maybe the, communi- the, you know, the communications firm that did it uh, might be feeling a little bit sad. Uh, but for the most part, everybody else, um, you know, I think it'll be gone in a relatively short period of time. Boy, the conservatives are clearly trying to make political hay out of it. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, is this a tricky situation for the liberals or is this a, a maybe not so tasty but digestible treat for them? I think it's both as mm. well. Uh, let's talk about what's tricky about it. It there, It's funny because I think the, the general public are going to say, I don't really know. You know, it's not quite the billion dollar long gun registry. It doesn't quite have that impact. And I, you know, I think that people are pretty used to massive cost overruns on on tech programs and i think that a a very in the no audience will also look at it and say well you know what it it seems too high but there's there's a lot of things that that justify that expense which i'm going to kind of try to quickly outline in a second here it's the group in the middle that that it's very tricky with right and that includes Mm. people like reporters who will say okay Mm -hmm. explain to me how because i think i understand the complexity of this app It, it is basically just what we call a crud app right? Or at least it appears on the surface, you know, create, read, update, destroy. It's just changing records around. You're just adding information to records, but uh, it's not so simple, right? Like the difficulty in an app for the federal government is not in the coding. Like, I mean, I was joking about doing it in one night, but it's not a huge lift to build an app like this. The complexity comes from the integrations that need to occur, the Mm -hmm. the changing scope that's going to happen along the way as you bring in all of these various departments, Obviously, the security requirements, we're not keeping what's your favorite flavor of bubblegum in this app. We're keeping information that's related to border security in this app, right? And the systems it needs to integrate with is going to have to have some pretty tight connections. And then these systems that it's connecting to were not created yesterday using the latest web standards. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of legacy systems that need to interact with. I'll tell you something from my time in government to illustrate how absurd this can be. Uh, there was a time we were asking about something to do with billing in the Alberta healthcare system. We asked if this could be a report that could be pulled, and it was not on specifics. Just to be really clear, it was on like general, like mm-hmm, data, mm-hmm. you know, in aggregate. And the challenge was uh, it couldn't because it was all using magnetic reel to reel from like the seventies and eighties, and it didn't have like a database that was naturally able to be kind of SQL queried in that particular fashion. It just wasn't possible. Uh, because we're not using the latest and greatest in government. Governments are early adapters. They're big institutional adapters. Change costs are enormous. And it may have been a situation where somebody said, okay, we can build an app 
that should cost us 10 million for 55 million. Uh, or we can update a system that's going to cost us $4 billion to update, right? And so you make that short-term decision instead. And yeah, maybe every app is then going to be more expensive for a while, but it's a, it's a big thing to digest. And there are, you know, government also, and this is my last point here, what do you think the fail rate is acceptable in government? Because it's basically 0%. These things have to be always on, always working. And uh, and that adds a lot to cost because you've got to build in a ton of redundancy as a result. So this is not something that your neighbor could build. I just want to underline that. Should it have cost $55 million? Probably if the government was a little more on the ball, it wouldn't cost half that. But it's not the, it's not the great drama that some people are trying to make it. Hmm. Gory, and we'll finish off this this Halloween edition of the Over Under the Lightning Round, the Trick or Treat edition, with this final question and prediction for you, Corey Hogan. Will the trick and the treat that is Donald Trump be back on Twitter, Corey? Will he be back on the blue check, the bluebird platform? I I think we should egg that house. I don't think we should stop and ask for tricks or treats there. It's just a bad, bad man. Carter. Are you willing to make another Carter prediction? Will Donald Trump be back on Twitter? Stand by for another Carter prediction. Oh, the drama. Yes. (laughs) He will be back on Twitter by the time we record our Patreon special on Thursday. Really? That quickly? Take note. You have just been witness to another Carter prediction. Now back to your podcast, already in progress. Uh, yeah, he'll be back by Thursday. For sure. <laughs> We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 1011 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Veldry. With me, as always, for our Halloween special, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan, and we will see you next time.